Well, Isaiah 9, really uh, Isaiah 7, 8 and 9 all run together and it's a bit difficult just picking up one chapter. So really need to have a listen to the, to the talk on Isaiah 8 to, to get the, the context here. Um, starts off really talking about darkness in verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah 9. And the people that walked in this darkness have seen a great light. And that great light is expanded on uh, in verses 6 and 7, that unto us a child is born, a son is given. So then what is this great darkness that they're walking in? Well, going back to the end of chapter 8, verse 22, they shall look unto the earth and behold distress and darkness, and they shall be driven uh, they shall be driven away into darkness, or into thick darkness, the uh, RV says. The idea of being driven into thick darkness is very much the picture of condemnation. And throughout Isaiah 8 and Isaiah generally, darkness appears to be condemnation. And so he's now saying in chapter 9 that the people who dwell in that darkness have seen a great light. He says in verse 20 uh, of chapter 8 in the RV, and I think the Hebrew uh, bears this sense, that those who do not speak according to the law and the testimony, this is because there is no morning for them, there is no dawn coming for them, there is no light for them. So then the darkness into which they're driven, chapter 8, verse 22, is condemnation. And yet, then we have this thing, that the people who are living in darkness, under the shadow uh, of darkness and of death, verse 2, have seen this great light. So verse 2 of chapter 9, who are those in the shadow of death and in this darkness? It is those who are condemned. It is those who in this life have been condemned, that this, uh, I guess, is Isaiah's generation, and it is them who see the light of Christ. What that means then is that in this life we can be condemned, and yet we can repent of that. It's rather like when Peter goes out into uh, the darkness when he's betrayed the Lord Jesus, and he is weeping bitterly. The, the very same words used about uh, the condemnation of the wicked. The idea is that we sin we are condemned in the sense that the judgment seat is ongoing, but we can change the verdict in this life. And that should give a, a tremendous intensity to human life now, that every sin calls for condemnation. And so there we are as the condemned people, uh, and yet we have the chance now to change the verdict. Just imagine how it would be at the last day if you came uh, to the Lord Jesus and he says, no, you're to the left, you are a goat. You're condemned, and they were like, but please, oh, please don't do that. And then he says, oh, yeah, okay, I'll change. Okay, you can go to the other side. You can imagine your relief, and you'd spend literally eternity thinking, wow. But the point is that although that is not going to happen at the last day, yet it can happen in this life, that we can go into darkness, as the people of Judah were at this time, and yet they had the chance to see great light. Now, who was this great light? Well, verse 2, the great light, uh, I, I think is clearly the, the sun that is mentioned in, in verse 6. And I would uh, suggest then that this uh, sun arises, we're told, uh, from this uh, rather... Um, despised area of northern Israel, verse 1, uh, Galilee of the nations. And when we read that in verse 1, uh, 
by the way of the sea beyond Jordan, I suggest the sea that is in view there is not the sea as in the Mediterranean, but the Sea of Galilee. So then this is very much the area of the Lord Jesus, of his birth and of his ministry. So this is the ultimately the, uh, the great light that, that arises. And yet, who then is, is this person then in, in, in verse 6? Well, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Who is saying this? This is Isaiah. And my suggestion is that in the first instance, the reference is to Isaiah as the proud father on behalf of his wife, who was also a prophetess, saying uh, that we have had a child. Why do I say that? Well, if you go back to chapter 8, verse 18, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and for wonders in Israel. So he had had children of sign. In chapter 7, we've had Shir Jashab, who is uh, the, uh, the one who means the remnant shall return. And then you have Emmanuel in, in chapter 8. And then you've got Meher Shalal Hashbaz in chapter 8. So there's at least three of them. And I suggest that this son in chapter 9, verse 6, is not named because he did not actually fulfill uh, that which was intended for him, that he could have been the messianic deliverer of, of God's people. But that did not happen. And that is why I think that the, the attempts that, that are made to prove that, for example, um, this is talking about God himself, by Trinitarians, etc., this can't be the case. I suggest that this is... Uh, this is still one of Isaiah's children it's the same with Emmanuel God with us well this was still one of Isaiah's children and his message in his name was that God is with us not that that child was God himself in person and yet I've said that the reference is ultimately to the Lord Jesus and in fact these early verses in Isaiah 9 are quoted specifically in the New Testament in in Luke about the the birth of Jesus and his emergence from the despised uh, northern part of Israel. So I think what happened was that this prophecy potentially could have come true in one of Isaiah's children, and yet it didn't, for whatever reason. Maybe the failure of the child, the failure of the the people, etc. And therefore the prophecy wasn't just discarded by God, it its fulfilment was rearranged and rescheduled to come true in uh, in the Lord Jesus. Now, in verse 7, we read that this is going to happen from henceforth, even forever. This is Isaiah talking in his own time, saying that this, this son is going to have an everlasting kingdom, and that kingdom is going to start right now from henceforth, and it's going to go on forever. But we know that, of course, that didn't happen in Isaiah's time. So, so many potentials are set up, and have been set up by God, and yet they're not realized, for whatever reason, but God doesn't give up. And this is a great thing about him, and the way he works with us as individuals, how he has worked with Israel, that he doesn't give up. And so the prophecy was rescheduled, as I would like to to call it, 
and reapplied to the Lord Jesus, who ultimately did fulfill uh, all these things. But just dropping back to verse 3, in the AV and the older English translations, it says something very strange. You have multiplied the nation and not increased the joy. They joy before you according to the joy in harvest, and as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Now, there is something wrong there with the, with the translation. And the other translations that repoint the original Hebrew uh, to say you multiply the nation, you prepare it great joy, and they rejoice before you like the joy in harvest as men rejoice when they share the spoil. That takes away the contradiction of them uh, not increasing the joy and then saying that they, they do have joy. That's just a note there on the translation. Uh, the idea was that this was a joy that was prepared for Israel when this child would be born. But generally there was not a great joy when the Lord Jesus was born, apart from by a few humble shepherds. Actually the opposite. We read in Matthew that Herod and all Jerusalem were troubled at the news that uh, a possible king had been born who sounded like Messiah. And who's the all Jerusalem that was troubled with Herod? I presume it's the, the uh, Jewish uh, Judean leadership at that time. And when we read about uh, men uh, rejoicing over the, uh, the dividing of the spoil in verse 3, well, that is an image that the Lord uses himself, Matthew 12:29, about how he is going to, uh, he's the strong man who's overcome the, uh, the, the, uh, the other strong man, and he is now dividing the spoil with us. But Israel did not perceive that, and they did not rejoice in this. And then verse 4, you have broken the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, rod of the oppressor. This is very much a language of Israel being delivered out of the staff of uh, the burden and the yoke of, of Egypt. It's as if the, this uh, son of Isaiah and the righteous remnant in Hezekiah's time could have brought about this great destruction of their enemies, and in a sense it did happen with the Assyrian destruction. Um, but ultimately the real fulfillment was in the Lord Jesus, when he says, I'm taking off your heavy yoke and I'm giving you my light yoke. Well, this is all the ultimate fulfillment uh, of this. So then, there's also a case that could be made that verse 6 applies to Hezekiah. Harry Whitaker's case on that and George Booker's book about Hezekiah is, I think, quite persuasive, that all those terms in verse 6 could apply to Hezekiah. And again, Isaiah could still say that, that one of his children was like that, because in Isaiah 8, um, when he says in verse 18 about I and the children whom the Lord has given me, uh, he, he parallels that with verse 16, seal the law among my disciples. It's as if his children could also have included his spiritual children. And Hezekiah, I guess, was one of them. There was this righteous remnant in Jerusalem made up of Isaiah and his wife and his kids, I'm suggesting there were four sons, and people like Hezekiah. But I'm just raising all this for you to, uh, you to think about. Just a, a point in verse 7, talking about the, the nature of the kingdom of this son, and we've suggested that ultimately uh, the fulfillment is to be in Jesus. 
of the increase of his government, there shall be no end. Uh, and it goes on to establish it, to uphold it with judgment and with righteousness, etc. The idea is that the king, this kingdom keeps on growing. Of the increase of this kingship or government, uh, there will be no end. What does that mean? We think of the stone in Daniel 2 hitting the image on the feet, and it becomes a great mountain, and it keeps on spreading to fill the whole earth. In a sense, I suggest then that God's rulership over us as individuals, his kingship over us, will keep on and on increasing throughout eternity, which I find a, an attractive idea. And you could also say that his kingship, his government, the area, the dominion over which he is king, will eternally increase. And what does that mean? Well, it could mean that progressively more and more of creation, including the natural creation, even animals and mountains and hills, etc., are somehow consciously brought under his rulership to his glory, or I could even talk about expansion into other planets, other, other realms and fields of, uh, of existence. Whatever. Now in this life, we must have that, in essence, that desire of wanting to spread the kingdom. To spread his kingship. That first of all, in our own lives, we should want to increasingly submit every aspect of human life to him. And to bring more and more people to to be underneath that kingship. That is what I understand the expansion of the kingdom uh, to be. And also, of course, there should be a desire to, to see that kingdom spreading in the sense of uh, not only bringing different parts of our own lives under his kingship and rulership, but also bringing more and more people under that in spreading the gospel to areas it's not been to, to people it's not been to, and also amongst those who have been baptized to help them to uh, allow that rulership and lordship of both God and the Lord Jesus to, to grow, to accept and, and take into account every part of their lives as well as our own. So if we start in this life, wanting to spread the gospel, wanting to bring all things into subjection, every part of our lives, of other people's lives, into subjection to Jesus as Lord, then we're living now the essence of the kingdom life. Another little uh, note in, in passing. The zeal of the Lord of hosts, under verse 7, will perform this. And as you probably know, that Hebrew word translated zeal, it really means the, the jealousy of the Lord of hosts. Uh, this whole intention of God with Israel, this whole project, if you like, that he has with Israel, uh, he is going to fulfill in the end, um, not because of their righteousness, but because of his jealousy over them. And I think that is a, a window into his feelings, that he is jealous. He is a jealous lover, he is a jealous husband, and this is why our unfaithfulness, their unfaithfulness, was so painful and is so painful to him. Uh, heading on then, uh, verses 11 and 12, 
something strangely relevant to the situation we have going on in Syria right now. Uh, Rezin is going to have adversaries, the king of Syria. And yet, at a time when the leadership of Syria has many adversaries, the Syrians before and the Philistines behind shall devour Israel with open mouth. Uh, that is exactly what looks set to happen right at this minute. With the, the leadership of Syria, with many adversaries, and there's huge civil war going on there, and yet also very anti-Israel, and Philistine and Palestine uh, is the same word. You can quite justifiably read that. The Syrians before and the Palestinians behind, they're like the two jaws of an open, of an open mouth that are devouring Israel. And to attack Israel is actually, I think, the logical next step for those guys because the only thing that's going to, do, going to unite the Arabs is a joint uh, attack against Israel. So I just mentioned that in passing because that seems uh, so appropriate to exactly what is going on I in the developing situation in Syria right at this time and their desire to create what they call Al-Sham, the, the, the greater Syria, uh, which includes what they would call Palestine, uh, Syria, Biblical Assyria, Iraq, etc., that would just require that to happen and they are they're likened here to a beast with an open mouth and I, I would take the beast as being a, the, the ultimately Israel's latter-day Arab enemies or Palestinian and Syrian enemies shall we say but that, that's in passing point uh, I think for us at the end of verse 12 for all this his anger is not turned away but his hand is stretched out still the meaning of his hand is stretched out still I think means that he is looking for repentance. Isaiah 65 verse 2 All day long have I stretched out my hand to a disobedient and gainsaying people. The idea being I've stretched out my hand looking for repentance. So his anger is not because he is a, uh, an all-powerful deity who has got offended and so he's lashing out, he's lashing back. His anger is not turned away because his hand is stretched out. Um, his hand is stretched out, according to the way that idiom is used, and I mentioned the classic passage in 65 verse 2 uh, in Isaiah, I stretched out my hand all day long to a disobedient and gainsaying people. In other words, I wanted you to repent. And so, as Emil Brunner said uh, long ago, that the wrath of God is the love of God. And that is so profoundly true that in all his judgments, that, that the cynic and the skeptic would say, well, uh, was his God of yours doing this, that, or the other, uh, apparently in wrath and anger? Yes, of course he has wrath and anger. It is the, uh, the wrath of love in, in, in that sense. That you, you can't be a God who loves so passionately without having anger and wrath at its, uh, its abuse and uh, it being spurned. That, that, that is, that the two things go... Uh, go hand in hand to me but um, my point is that that anger is multifunctional that it is actually a hand stretched out seeking seeking uh, repentance from Israel and I think that's why Israel's final sufferings will only end when they repent and when Israel repent then 
their time of trouble ends and they accept the Lord Jesus and lo and behold, he comes. And that's why I urge us to continue to witness to Israel, to Jewish people in particular, because even if they may not respond at this moment in time, when all this happens, and it's about to happen and is happening really, then they will respond and in repentance and then Christ shall come. And that's why I don't think there's a calendar date for the Lord's return. It is open to some degree on Israel's repentance. Now that view, I think, about the hand being stretched out, being an appeal for repentance, is continued in verse 13. Yet the people have not turned unto him that smote them. Now who's him that smote them? It is God, and it continues, neither have they sought the Lord of hosts. So then it is God ultimately working through Israel's enemies. So those angry young Muslim Arab men snarling, as it were, at Israel, God in the end is behind them. And the comfort in our lives is that there is no, in that sense, radical evil. That there is no um, radical uh, wickedness or darkness that is happening to us, but that God is behind that. God was the one who smote Israel through those people. And his hand was stretched out for their repentance, but because they had still not turned unto him, Therefore, his anger was still with them, was still against them. And so, verse 14, Therefore the Lord will cut off from Israel head and tail, branch and rush in one day. The ancient and the honorable man, the prophet, is the tail, etc. Now, this is, uh, I think, uh, quite a theme in Isaiah, that both the, the leaders and the ordinary people alike were to be judged chapter 1 starts with this prophecy against heaven and earth and he goes on to define what he means by that the rulers and the ordinary people that's what he says in chapter 1 it's a theme that goes on through Isaiah and you've got it again here and he goes on in verse 17 having talked there about how the leaders the honorable man and the prophet the false prophet are going to be punished Verse 17, Therefore the Lord shall not rejoice over the young men, neither shall have compassion on their fatherless and widows, for each one is a hypocrite and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. Now, this is, as I say, the idea of an appeal to heaven and earth in chapter 1, that the, the ordinary people and the leadership were alike evil. And it's pretty chilling, really, that he says, because of that, I will not have compassion on their fatherless and on their widows, their widows and orphans. And that's such a feature of God, all through the law, to have compassion upon the orphan and the widow. So the point is that those, as it were, ordinary people were not innocent. They were not innocent. They could not simply say, well, we were railroaded into this uh, position by our leadership. So many times they tend to think that people are innocent because of bad, or relatively innocent because of bad leadership, and we all tend to blame our own sins and failings on that. I uh, caught myself earlier today saying to a friend of mine that uh, I, I had had a, an unloving and harsh attitude uh, when I was younger, but I went on to say, yeah, well, sort of that was the way I was brought up, and that was what was expected of me. But th this is quite clear here, is it not, that 
the ordinary people are still held guilty for what they have said and done uh, just as much as their, their leadership. And so to, to excuse ourselves that I, I am or I was just one little person and I was misled, well, my, that is true as far as it goes, but the point is that does not, um, that does not excuse human behavior. Something else that comes out of this repeated emphasis in verse 17, for each one of them, he's talking about the ordinary people now, for each one of them is a hypocrite, is a hypocrite in the RV, each one of them is profane and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. Um, Isaiah and his wife and those children and Hezekiah were in an absolute minority. They really were surrounded uh, by complete unspirituality and in chapter 1 again we mentioned this looking at chapter 1 that um, the whole of Jerusalem is described there as a, as a prostitute in fact so it's not as if Jerusalem was full of righteous remnant people they are all condemned in pretty strong language so I really feel that Isaiah and his family were really pretty well on their own and uh, I've said there May have been Hezekiah with them, although I think Hezekiah bent under pressure. Um, and, uh, well, the, the text stands as it is, that all the ordinary people, as well as all the leaders, were, were corrupt. So this is really the position that we're all in, that we are a minority. Uh, and we, we don't like that. We want to be in the majority, even though we may consider ourselves strong and tough individuals. We don't like to be in a minority. Who wants to be in a minority? Um, on one hand, I accept that the seed of Abraham shall be as the stars in the sky, that it is a mass salvation that God had in view in Christ. And yet, in reality, it is a little flock. And so if you feel that even within the Ecclesia, and this is talking about within the Ecclesia as it was of Isaiah's day, that you are a minority and nobody seems to get it, well, you know what I'm saying. On one hand, you're probably no better than your brethren, and maybe risking being like Elijah, who said, I, uh, I'm the only one left, and God basically says, no, I've left at least 7,000 who haven't bowed their knees to Baal, and I fire you from the ministry and replace you with Elisha. Uh, you know, we've got to be wary of that. And yet, on the other hand, uh, it, there, there are times and there are aspects over which we can legitimately feel with no self-righteousness that in real spiritual terms, in my context, in this particular issue, um, I am alone, I am in a tiny minority. And it's in times like that that we take comfort from Isaiah and his wife and his family in this situation surrounded by this mass of, uh, this mass of unspirituality.